So would you like to talk about sex? Would you, <laughs> you know, I look forward to the day, Ken, when I can introduce you sometime. I, I look forward to passing the torch. We've had a lot of good times together, and I appreciate your friendship as well. And your friendship. You have no idea, and I'm not just saying it to stroke you. You have no idea how much your support and friendship and encouragement and affirmation always means to me. It's a thrill to get up in the morning and get in my car and come here because it isn't going to a job. It's going to be with an extended part of my family, and I really feel that way about you. Thank you very much for your support of me. Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9, if you would. Daniel chapter 9. I'm frequently asked the question, how do you decide what topics you want to talk about? That's a provocative question. It's really an easy question to answer. I go through basically two routines to determine the topics that I address. One is this. There are certain topics in the Bible I just can't figure out, certain questions that haunt me, some things that really bug me, and it causes me to lay awake at night wondering about this, trying to put it all together. So whenever I encounter a topic like that, I turn to the book, I do my homework, I try to find the answers, put it all together, and then tell you what I learned. Next Wednesday will be an example of that kind of message. Something that bugged me, kept me awake at night, I had to find the answer, and I found the answer. I'll tell you about that next week. The other way I choose a topic is this. I've got a nine-year-old boy, a two-year-old daughter. My two-year-old daughter is very carefree and very innocent and doesn't understand half of the things I tell her. But my nine-year-old boy is getting to that point where he's about to enter adolescence. It's about three or four years away. I'm getting ready to buckle my seatbelt and dig in for the long haul. There are a number of things I need to teach him to get him ready to become one of you. That is a frightening <laughs> prospect. So I ask myself on many occasions, what are the things that I need to tell him in kind of a intimate little father-son chit-chat? And there are times when I will sit him upon my lap and we will talk. We will talk about some of the serious issues of life that you have had to deal with when you entered junior high school. This morning is an example of that. I want you, if you can do it in your imagination, and it'll take a lot of imagination. I, this is a very unintimate environment. I would much prefer to talk to you about these things one-on-one. -on -one. If you can kind of put out of your mind the other 850 people in here and picture yourself, okay, this is kind of weird, but if you can think about it, sitting on my lap, okay, and we're going to have a father-son, father-daughter little chit-chat about life, all right? Daniel chapter 9, in honor of the Word of God, would you stand with me, please? Beginning to read at verse 3. Daniel said, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Notice as I read this, the emphasis on the pronoun we, first person plural, for those of you of an English persuasion. 
Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel who are nearby, and those who are far away in all the countries to which thou hast driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us, our Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Verse 11, indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Let's pray together, and then we will talk about that first person, plural, pronoun, we. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together for another chapel. Thank you for the privilege of lifting our voices in praise to you. We turn our attention now to the Word of God. Speak, we pray, in a powerful way to each one. I pray, Father, that the result of this message would be to get us to think, to dialogue, to discuss, to work through some issues that perhaps we have not considered before. We commit the time to you. We pray you'll be honored in it, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have to confess to you that I bring to the platform this morning somewhat of a heavy, broken heart. Four situations have happened, none of which are immediately related to me, but all of which have touched my life in a profound way. Kind of like four strands of a tapestry that have been woven together that have kind of cast a shadow upon my day. Let me quickly tell you of these stories. There is a link among the four. I think you will sense it as I describe them to you. A young couple in their 30s living in Palmdale, their lives were shattered tragically on the 28th of December, about a month and a half ago, when the husband left the home never to return. His wife called the police department the next morning to file a missing persons account. They finally found her husband in a pool of blood. His back head of his head had been blown off and the gun in his hand, the victim of suicide. Upon further investigation and his witnesses began to come forward, it came to light that this woman, married to the 30-year-old individual, had an affair going on with a 17-year-old male student at Palmdale High School. And apparently, it was not a suicide at all. Apparently, the 17-year-old student gunned the husband down in cold blood, shooting him in the back. She is now charged with being an accessory to the crime after the fact. Her bail has been raised, and she is now sitting in a jail cell. That accusation coming yesterday. By the way, they have two small children who have now suffered the agony of not only their father being killed, but now their mother, an accessory to the crime, apparently sitting in a jail cell. 
A 25-year-old Ontario woman displaced 30,000 rush-hour drivers yesterday. She caused a hit-and-run accident when the highway patrol tried to pull her over. It ended up in a high-speed chase. They finally managed to work her car over to the side of the road. She locked all the doors of the vehicle so that they couldn't get in. They managed to pry one of the back doors open, grabbed her by the arm. She began to kick and scream, fighting the attempt of the highway patrol officer to pull her out. He finally managed to get her out of the car, and then she screamed, There's a bomb in the trunk! You may touch the detonator. The freeway had to be shut down. 30,000 drivers displaced. Her five-year-old daughter sitting in the front seat of the car watching this take place. She is now in custody. The five-year-old daughter is with her grandparents now. That happened at 6.45 a.m. yesterday. A 23-year-old man was sentenced to 21 years to life in jail. Friends with a woman, her two-year-old daughter, was apparently kidnapped. At least that's the way the police report read. But upon further investigation, it turns out that the two-year-old daughter's mother, her friend, murdered her two-year-old daughter. After several months of abuse, and the mother helped her boyfriend dump the body of her two-year-old daughter in Azusa Canyon. That came to light in a courtroom yesterday. One more story, the builder, founder, and president of Covenant House, maybe you've heard of it, the nation's largest shelter for one-away teenagers, had to step down from his post in the wake of alleged sexual abuse allegations. He is a 62-year-old priest and has been accused by three former residents of Covenant House of sexual misconduct, molestation, and abuse. He had to step down from his post yesterday. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but the time is coming and it will quickly be upon me when I have to sit my son down on my lap, look him in the eye and tell him that life is a lot more than just soccer practice. Life is a lot more than just going over to his friend Kevin's house to play. I have to confront him with the reality that I face every day that there is something radically wrong with our world. It isn't unique to yesterday. Yesterday's newspaper recording the events of Monday are very similar. There is something radically wrong with our world, radically wrong with every area of our world. There is something wrong with our politics. Yesterday's paper, the headline, quote, Reagan invokes executive privilege in refusing to submit diary entries. The specter of Iran-Contra continues to haunt the hallowed halls of the Oval Office. The last time I heard the words executive privileged used, we were in the wake of the Watergate scandal. It affects education. Headline in yesterday's paper, quote, Desert Winds Instructor Accused of Statutory Rape. This high school teacher, 33 years old, apparently guilty of a two-week affair with a 16-year-old female student, 20 miles north of here. Yesterday's paper in the area of law, the headline, quote, L.A. jurist who admitted driving under the influence of drugs resigns. There is something wrong with the medical world. Yesterday's newspaper, quote, Newhall doctor sentenced to 53 years to life in babies' deaths. That happened here. It hits the area of religion. Yesterday's paper, quote, pastor refuses to give phone number of lover. We have another adultery situation. 
a Methodist minister refusing to turn over the phone number of his mistress. It affects the area of athletics. Yesterday's paper, headline, quote, possibility of lockout looms larger and larger. Spring training probably will not start next week. Why? Because of greed. Multi-millionaire owners, multi-millionaire players, multi-millionaires wanting more. There is something radically wrong with our world. There is a doctrine in the Bible that addresses it, and in my opinion, it is clearly the most underestimated, if not totally neglected, doctrine in all of the Bible. I cannot remember in the seven years that I have taught here ever hearing one message addressing this issue. We are living in a world of 5.2 billion people who are infected with an incurable disease. It is an underestimated doctrine, but in my opinion, it is foundational to a basic understanding of the Bible and a basic understanding of human nature, a basic understanding of the Christian life, a basic understanding of spiritual warfare, and a basic understanding as to how to have victory over that warfare. And yet, there is not, to my knowledge, one popular book in print currently that addresses this issue. It is a topic that is reserved for a chapter buried deeply in a theology book someplace. The topic of which I speak not only affects the people who write the headlines, it affects me and you. A Calvinist understands it as the T in the little acrostic tulip. A theologian will refer to it as the total depravity of man. I will simply describe it to you as this. There is something radically wrong with our world. And there is something radically wrong with me. I am a totally depraved human being. You are a totally depraved human being. I'm not quite sure we understand that. I honestly get the feeling that some of us think we are not really so bad. I don't know if we really understand just how deep Depravity runs in our genes. In the sight of God, there is absolutely nothing to commend me to Him. Apart from His grace, I would live my life with a full expression of total rebellion. It is only His restraint on my life that has kept me from writing some of the headlines that I have just read to you. But the same desire that motivated the people to do what they did, that captured the headlines in yesterday's paper, that same desire pulsates through my arteries. I've never committed adultery, but I have wanted to. That temptation has nearly at moments of weakness seduced me into the quicksand of my own demise. I didn't murder my two-year-old child. I am not a murderer. But hatred for another human being has surged through my veins. I've thought about it. The fantasy has been there at times. The object of my hatred, my own father. And for years I was paralyzed by an overwhelming desire to see that man dead. I am no better than what I read to you in the headlines. Those same impulses 
the tendency toward greed, the, the ability to deceive, basic dishonesty, all of those are resident within me. I am totally depraved. I am, at the core of my being, a rebel. I am an individual whose will God has had to break. I am one who struggles to live up to the songs that I sing in chapel. I'll obey and serve you. I wish it was that easy. There are days I don't want to. There are days I don't. I'm a rebel. A depraved human being. I don't like to acknowledge the fact. I like to believe that I'm really not so bad. But the fact is this. When Adam rebelled, I rebelled. When Adam heard that seductive voice in the garden, I listened to that voice. When Adam bought into the deception, I have bought into it too. The serpent said to Eve, I'm assuming she communicated the thought to her husband. The serpent said to Eve, you surely shall not die. That's a wholesale denial of the consequences of my sin. The serpent said to Eve, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. That is intellectual pride. The serpent said to Eve, you will be like God. That is wholesale moral independence. The serpent said to Eve, you will know good and evil. That is situational ethics. And I have bought into all four of those lies. I have believed that my rebellion isn't so bad and there will be no consequences. I have believed that I am intellectually independent of God and can figure it out on my own. I have believed at times that I am morally independent. I call the shots. And I have believed at times that the situation warrants and justifies my violating what I know to be right. Situational ethics. I bought into it. When he picked up that piece of fruit, my hand, in a gesture of rebellion, wrapped itself around that fruit too. When he lifted it to his lips, I shared in my own heart the desire to overthrow God and live as an independently moral being. When he bit into that piece of fruit, it was far more significant than just a piece of fruit in the garden. That act communicated to God that He was overthrowing, if I can use kind of a, kind of a trendy word, He was overthrowing God's Lordship in His life. Exalting Himself to the place of God, accountable to no one but Himself. I have lived my life that way. There is something radically wrong with our world. But I have to come to grips with the fact that there is something radically wrong with me. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul made this statement. You don't need to turn to it. You can if you'd like. In verse 16, Paul said this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But the fact is that I do not always walk by the Spirit. And the fact is that the desires of the flesh haunt me torment me, stalk me every day of my life. The list is here. It's not very impressive. Being as transparent with you as I can, Paul didn't know me when he wrote these words, but he knew the human heart. And he gave a pretty accurate description of what you will find in my own heart if you put an x-ray machine up and take a close look. Verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. All of those desires have been present in my heart even during the 20 years I've been a Christian. And the warfare that I am embroiled in is a warfare not so much against an unseen enemy, the devil, as it is against the sinful desires that wage war within my own heart. I am a depraved man. And I honestly believe that if you come to grips with depravity and really understand it for what it is and understand how inherently wicked you and I are, it will color your perception on a, on a plethora of topics. My time is limited. So let me give you just kind of a brief grocery list of issues that I believe will be colored by your understanding of depravity. You'll permit me to get a bit controversial along the way, will you not? I believe that an understanding of total depravity will completely change your perception of God. When I understand how totally depraved I am, I cannot just trifle in the things of God any longer. The awe that Ken talked about is the sensation that floods my own being when I understand how infinitely holy He is and how despicably wicked I am. When I come to grips with my depravity, it strips my life of the why questions. Why doesn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? How could God allow this? Doesn't seem fair that God... Who am I? A fallen human being to question God. When I understand how depraved I am, the words of the Apostle Paul ricochet through my mind. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, On the contrary, who are you? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In my theology class last semester, we had about a two-week debate concerning the topic of election. Some students were getting a bit agitated because it just didn't seem fair that God would choose some and not others. The issue was settled by my good friend, a dear woman I deeply respect. You respect her as well. Godly gal. Paula Rippentrop said this. After a two-week discussion, raised her hand. When I called on her, she said this. Ah, I will never forget it. Her words burn in my mind and will do so till the day I drop dead. I love that moment. I wish I had it on videotape. How dare we question God? And her words reverberated through the chapel at Grace Baptist Church. How dare we question God? Depravity has that impact upon me. There have been times I've had students say to me, and I appreciate their honesty and transparency, when that happened in my life, I got so mad at God. There were times when as a Christian I have gotten mad at God. Who am I to get mad at God? A fallen, inherently wicked creature would dare get mad at the awesome, infinite, holy God of the universe? 
I'm with Paul on this one. Who are you? I'm but dust. That's who I am. I believe that an understanding of total depravity will change my perception of evangelism. Evangelism. There is a movement afoot today in youth ministry, as you well know, to sugarcoat the gospel, water it down to the point where we make it, I hate this word, attractive. Or people will say to me, but we need to show the unsafe people out there that Christians can have fun too. Since when is that the issue? Or we will present the gospel in a need-oriented way. You've heard it, so have I. You won't hear it from my lips, I hope. Come to Jesus and He'll take your loneliness away. So every lonely person in the place comes forward. Come to Jesus and He'll take the emptiness out of your life. So all the empty people run to the front. Come to Jesus and He'll give your life a life that's abundant. So all the bored people come up front. When was loneliness, emptiness, or abundance ever the issue? Why do I need to present the gospel in an exciting, upbeat, rock music fashion? A drowning man couldn't care less the color or the glitter attached to the life preserver. Just throw it. If I have to sugarcoat the gospel to make it, quote, attractive, then I am admitting to you a low view of depravity. The issue is not my loneliness. I've been a Christian 20 years and I've been lonely at times. The issue is not my emptiness. I'm a fallen man living in a fallen world and times I feel empty. Don't you? I'm afraid that we set our young people up and program them for failure because we make promises God never intended to deliver. The issue isn't that I'm bored or lonely or empty. The issue is that I am a fallen creature destined for an eternity in hell and I am offering a way of forgiveness and a way of escape. That's the issue. Evangelism is a depravity issue. Jesus shouted from the cross, John 19.30, It is finished! And when He shouted those words, payment had been made for man's sin. That's the issue. And to present the Gospel in any other context than a sin issue is to not present the true Gospel at all. I believe that an understanding of total depravity will change your perception of people. Even the best of people fail. There will be no room in our thinking for the pedestal. We will understand that even the best of men have feet of clay. And depravity strikes all of us. Do a character study sometime in your Bible and you will find out that there aren't too many shining lights out there. You can go through the list. Noah, after the flood, this is post-flood, after the flood got drunk, conducted himself in a lewd manner. Abraham doubted God, lied about his wife, committed adultery. Isaac learned how to sin from his own father and lied about his wife to Abimelech. Jacob was a deceiver and extortioner. Moses was a self-willed, self-reliant, cold-blooded murderer. Aaron led the whole nation into worship and a sexual orgy. David, the all-time ladies' man, every time he met a woman he liked, he married her. Lost the respect of all of his children. One of his own boys tried to murder him. Solomon fell because of the love he had for 1,000 women. 
full-on hormone high, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and said, even a thousand women don't satisfy me. Samson fell because of the lustful love he had for a wretched woman. Elijah, when confronted by one wicked woman, became suicidal. Ezekiel was a brash, crusty, say-what-you-think priest. Hosea married a woman by the name of Gomer, if you can imagine. <laughs> Gomer herself being a prostitute. Peter denied Christ and was rebuked by Paul when he bowed the knee to the Judaizing heresy. Paul and Barnabas had... What is recorded in the book of Acts is a sharp disagreement and had to part company with one another. Jesus renamed John a son of thunder because of an uncontrollable temper. And Timothy was ashamed of Jesus Christ and had to be rebuked. Depravity strikes all of us. None of us walks on water. None of us are etched in stained glass. All of us are capable with the right circumstances and the right combination of pressures committing any atrocity we can imagine. And it is only by the grace of God we don't. An understanding of depravity will forever strip away from your thinking any sense of pride. When you understand how inherently wicked you are and what kind of desires surge through your veins, where is there room for pride? I deserve one thing and one thing only, and that's to be in hell. And the fact that I'm not is a function of God's grace. It is not merited by me whatsoever. It is His grace unconditionally, unconditionally poured into my life. If God chooses to do anything through your life or mine that it is all pos positive, where is the room for pride in that? I preach a book I didn't write. I exercise a gift I didn't earn or develop on my own. Energized by a spirit I did not develop but was given to me. Influencing the lives of people whom God touches I could never touch. And He gets all the glory for it. Where is the room for pride in that? We are mere creatures of dust, depraved individuals, dying people talking to dying people. That's all we are. And if we ever get to thinking we're so fancy, then we just realize that we are somewhere in between the spectrum of a rock and Balaam's ass because God used both of them, and frankly, they served Him more faithfully than I do. Where is there room for pride in that? I believe that an understanding of depravity will forever change your life purpose and direction. Your life purpose and direction. I have a concern. My concern is this. Because we live in a country that is free, and because a commitment to Christ is relatively easy, nobody has a gun to your head or mine, because prosperity, material blessing is a potential for any of us, we live in a free enterprise system where you and I, if we orchestrated the events correctly, could manipulate our circumstances and create a million dollars. We could do that. I could do it. You could do it. It doesn't take an awful lot of intelligence or an awful lot of drive to become a millionaire today. A modest income and a few shrewd investments and you and I could achieve it. It is my concern on a campus like this that for many of us, the pursuit in our lives, the goal that we live for is to create for ourselves a basically comfortable lifestyle. We have as our pursuit a life of happiness. 
I'm not sure happiness is even an issue with God. There's no guarantee that God says I'll be happy. I don't see any verse motivating me to that pursuit. I have come to the conclusion, and take what I'm saying in balance. Don't take it to an extreme I don't intend. You know that I'm a fairly happy-go-lucky guy, and I bounce through the campus pretty well enjoying life. But I honestly don't believe that fallen people living in a fallen world can expect to experience happiness all the time. Events come crashing into our lives that upset the apple cart that take the happiness away from time to time. And to make comfort or happiness my lifelong pursuit, to me, is a bogus pursuit. It would be nice if I could keep my head in the sand and never read the morning paper. And try to insulate myself from what's going on in the world around me. But I can't. I might get cancer. My children may die. I don't believe that happiness is the proper pursuit for us. I agree with what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, commenting upon Western culture after having been himself completely, in terms of his thinking, infiltrated with Soviet society and culture. He said this, quote, But the fight for our planet, physical and spiritual, a fight of cosmic proportions, is not a vague matter of the future. It has already started. The forces of evil have begun their decisive offensive. You can feel their pressure. Yet, your screens and your publications are full of prescribed smiles and raised glasses. What is the joy about? I agree. There are times when God does allow happiness. But there are so many more times when I carry in my own body an aching heart. Because there are two-year-old babies dumped into canyons. And there are 30-year-old wives who have affairs with 17-year-old high school students and murder their husbands in the process. I live in that kind of a world and it touches me, maybe indirectly and maybe at times directly, because loved ones do die and people around me do disappoint me. Things are never as good as my fantasy tells me they will be. A house is just a house. That's all it is. A bunch of drywall paint, pipes, an electrical wire. And to make that a pursuit is a pretty empty pursuit because when you get the house, you realize it's just a house. A car is just a bunch of metal screwed together and hopefully when you turn the key, it will start. But to make a nice car a pursuit is a pretty empty pursuit because it will rust. The quest for happiness is an empty quest. I'm with Paul on this one, Romans chapter 8. All of creation, verse 18, is groaning. I identify with what Paul said in verse 23 when he, when he basically made this statement, while I am groaning inwardly, I'm waiting eagerly for His coming. It isn't a life of laughter. You may sense that in the dining hall when I walk through the line, but it is primarily a life of groaning because the overwhelming majority of people are desperately hurting. And you know what? I hurt too, because sometimes life is unfair to me. And so I groan. And I guess if there was one verse that summarized my feeling on life clearer than any other, it would be Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1. This is a man who understood depravity. This is a man who understood a fallen world. Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 23, I am hard pressed from two directions. 
I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you. I want to go to be with Him, but you need me. That's what Paul said. So I'll stick around as long as you need me, but when you no longer need me, I'm out of here. I don't understand people, Christians, who are attracted to this planet. I don't understand it. And sink their roots deep and hold on to life, squeezing out of it everything they can get. I don't understand that. It is a wicked planet and I'm a wicked man. I want out of the planet and out of this body of flesh that tries to lure me into my depraved desires. Death for me is not a dreaded event. It is that graduation day I look forward to with even greater anticipation than you look forward to your graduation day out of this institution. To hold on to life, I don't understand it. The goal is not a nice house or a big paycheck or a fancy car. The goal is, God, I want to be a godly influence in a decadent society. And when my influence is over, take me out. That's the pursuit of life. Chuck Colson, I just read his latest book, Against the Night. He makes this statement in page 57. He is talking here about you and me. You'll hear the reference to the word cocaine, but with that one exception, he's talking about you and me. This is what he says. You know Chuck Colson, right? He was... Uh, Special counsel to President Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal. Fell from the pinnacle of the presidency to wallowing in the wasteland of Watergate and has risen out of that to become one of the mightiest prophets in our nation's history. This is what he says, quote, Today's hedonists, that's a pleasure-seeking, pleasure-oriented individual that could be true of you and me. Today's hedonists are creatures of evolution. Polyester discomaniacs became yuppies snorting cocaine in the bathrooms of brass and fern eateries. Then evolved into leotard-clad health freaks sipping Perrier at the helm of computerized exercycles. That's us. Who then slumped into today's couch potatoes ordering pizza delivered with a rental movie. That's us. Home has become the new womb for those without communities. It is a place of self-nurture and escape from AIDS and other perils of modern life. Propped in front of the VCR, this self-indulgent species enjoys life with all of its conveniences. That's us. How many Christians go home every day from a job they hate, pulling a paycheck to buy things that will eventually break, only to sit in front of a VCR and eat pizza? That's us. A life pursuit, pursuit once achieved was empty. I believe that an understanding of depravity will color your whole perception of what we call self-esteem or self-image. You've heard a variety of opinions on self-image. I may as well throw mine out on the table for your consideration. Last week, I got a brochure in the mail for the Youth Ministry University, a one-week intensive youth training program held in Chicago this year, and all of the workshops are described. One of them is as follows. Course title, Building Self-Esteem in Your Young People. Course overview, discover how to help your kids restore shattered self-images. Build a youth program that can help kids develop positive self-identities rooted in solid Christian principles. You'll get loads of practical suggestions for building self-esteem in your young people. You will learn how to encourage self-affirmation in your kids. 
How to develop a curriculum around self-esteem. How to identify roadblocks to a healthy self-image. How to help young people deal with self-esteem in relation to peer pressure, sex, and spiritual life. And how to use creative Bible studies to improve self-image. Don't take what I'm about to say to an extreme that I don't intend. But would you show me please in the Bible where I am motivated anywhere to take a group of students and build into them positive self-affirmation? When Isaiah cried out in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Nobody put an arm around him and ran him through the principles to build his low self-esteem. When Peter cried out, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Jesus did not pick him up and say, Now, Peter, you really shouldn't feel so bad about yourself. God, you got worth. When Paul cried out in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am! Nobody gave him a self-help book on how to build self-esteem. When Daniel prayed, as I read to you already, in Daniel chapter 9, open shame belongs to us. Nobody shook their head and went, poor boy, he's got low self-image. Would you tell me please, my opinion, take it for what it's worth, would you tell me please what it means for a depraved man to have a positive self-image? I feel insecure about my appearance. Rightly so. I'm a fallen man living in a decaying body. And I can try to preserve whatever appearance I may have, but it will eventually wither away. I can feel insecure about the things that I do. But rightly so, I'm a fallen man and I do stupid things. I don't believe the answer is a positive self-image, building self-affirmation in my students. I think the answer is to realize I'm a totally depraved man, miraculously redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and gifted supernaturally by God to impact a decadent world. That's positive self-esteem. I've got time for just one more. Which one should I give you? Uh, how about this one? I believe that an understanding of depravity will forever change your concept of the Lordship of Christ in your life. We are living in a unique time where it has been possible for you and me to take our commitment to Christ and relegate it to one slice of my life having no influence on any other area of my life. possible for me to tell you I am committed to Christ, but that commitment does not impact the vocabulary that we use, the places of entertainment we go to, the people we date, our moral standards, all of that seemingly not influenced by our commitment to Christ, our commitment to Christ being just one little slice of life. Colson summarized it well when he made this statement. Pollsters tell us that 50 million Americans say they are born again. No doubt about it, religion is up. But so are practices unremittingly opposed to the truth of Christianity. One out of every two marriages is shattered by divorce. One out of three pregnancies end in abortion. Homosexuality is no longer considered deviant or depraved behavior. It is now accepted as an alternate lifestyle. Crime continues to soar. In Christian America, there are 100 times more burglaries than in pagan Japan. Sin abounds in the midst of unprecedented religiosity. Why? If there are so many Christians in the United States, why aren't we affecting our world? I believe it's because many Christians fall into the same trap 
of many of my friends. We treat our faith like a section of the newspaper or an item on our things to do today list. We file religion in our schedules between relatives and running. It is just one of the many concerns competing for our attention. Not that we aren't serious about it. We go to church. We attend Bible studies. We're just as serious about our jobs and physical fitness. The typical believer prays sincerely about his work, but never talks candidly with his non-Christian colleagues about his faith. He is only comfortable evaluating his spiritual life in a spiritual context. This results in a spiritual schizophrenia as the Christian bounces back and forth between the stock market and sanctification. Such categorizing would be plausible if Christianity were nothing more than a moral code, an AA pledge, or a self-help course. But, Christianity claims to be the central fact of human history. The God who created man invaded the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He died, was resurrected, ascended, and lives today sovereign over all. If this claim is valid, if Christianity is true, then it cannot be simply a file drawer in our crowded lives. It must be the central truth from which all our behavior, all of our relationships, and all of our beliefs flow. I agree. Depravity does not allow me the luxury of allowing my commitment to Christ to be one part of my life. Depravity demands that He sovereignly controls and influences every area of my life. Total depravity. I believe the most underestimated, if not thoroughly neglected, doctrine in the Bible. And an understanding of total depravity will have a radical impact upon your perception of virtually every area of your life. Aren't you glad we have a Redeemer who bore upon His own body my depravity and yours? And due to no merit of my own, simply because He loves me and chose to, has poured His Holy Spirit into my life and is in the process now of helping me with His divine power to mature and become like Christ in spite of the depravity that lurks through my system. An awesome Redeemer we have. And I think it would be only fitting for us to end by singing about that Redeemer. Would you stand with me?